this is Elevation Gains Podcast. I'm Holly, a coaching weightlifter. I own a strength gym in Oakland, California. Again, uh, episode nine. I feel like we had a lot of fun on this episode. We talked a little bit about some new leave no trace policies and we dug into some of our more recent adventures. Yeah, I feel like this uh, episode should just be named uh, like a cute little poop emoji um, pillow <laughs> or something. Um, we had some we had some icky moments, but they were all really, really fun and also really important. Yeah, I'll be interested to see if we get any feedback on this one. Say. I do tend to get some pushback anytime I talk about leave no trace stuff. Man, I will take that on any day. Cause like, I feel like if you want to go into wild spaces, sometimes you have to do the things that you don't necessarily think on your own are the most important, but sometimes rules are actually there for a reason and they're actually are important whether or not you think so. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the end of the day, I think a lot of people just feel entitled to not follow the rules and uh they shouldn't do that so this will be a fun episode to see if we get some some pushback and some some negative feedback (laughs) i mean as as a complete and total rule breaker i feel like this is one place that i dig in and uh say definitely follow the rules um so if you're feeling pushback uh during this episode just just listen to my voice in your head follow the rules take care of the wild it's there i want to i want it to, to stay there but we also got to like hear about the lost coast trip which is fucking awesome and so much fun and we heard about your kelp diving which was to me like even just hearing about it is terrifying so i can't imagine actually doing it but i love hearing your stories um, well, I mean, maybe I'll get you into the ocean one day, um, or maybe even just into water, maybe Tahoe. We'll, we'll start with, we'll start with an alpine lake, right? You know, I like swimming in lakes. You and I have swam in lakes. It's just the it's ocean. It's just the ocean that freaks me out a little bit. Real talk. The ocean is incredibly scary. And then at the end, we've got a, um, bonus awesome trail recommendation. So listen to the end and, and get to that and you know, get out there and see awesome shit. All right, let's, uh, let's get on with the episode. Woo! We are at episode nine, believe it or not. I mean, I'll believe it because every time I send you an email, I like, I'm like, uh, episode, and then I just fill in what we planned on talking about because I can never remember. <laughs> I, I have the notable benefit of being the one who uploads all the episodes, so I have them all in the app, and the app automatically numbers them. So, te- technology oh, no. is definitely my friend in this case. <laughs> 
Well, thank you for making me feel a little bit better about it. And honestly, technology keeping track of numbers is like a really important part of my life. (laughs) So today we had planned on doing a kind of like, where have we been? Where are we now? VH1 type of situation. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But like a catch up on all the rad adventures that we've been up to, especially you, the Lost Coast. Like, I really, really, really want to hear about this. Um, But you have a uh, update to Leave No Trace that you wanted to kind of talk about and walk us through. Do you want to start that off? Yeah. Um, So there is an update coming to Leave No Trace practices in certain national parks and and other wild spaces. It's not everywhere yet, but I have a suspicion that it will be soon. And essentially what some of these parks are going to be asking in the very, very near future is that instead of digging a cat hole and burying your waste we're being asked to carry wag bags and carry our waste out with us. So do you want to talk about a wag bag really quick? Cause my experience is only using them in a submarine, which is a weird place to have used one. Um, but when in a submarine, you not a lot of places to go. Right. I, and I, the, the basic principle is the same. So what, what a wag bag is, it's a waste, disposal bag essentially it's a it's a portable toilet um you see them a lot of times like uh referred to as like chemical toilets or it's just like a bag you place over something that looks very much like a toilet seat in the case of backcountry use you just lay it out kind of on the ground you know find a nice private spot and there's a chemical inside the the bag that has the ability to kind of break down the waste and inhibit the smell a little bit because you are going to be carrying this bag out with you. And I've, I've had to use them a few times, both times that we climbed Mount Whitney, you have to use wag bags on Mount Whitney. And then in some of the desert environments that I visited where there just isn't enough microbial life to handle human waste, they ask you to carry, carry your own waste out. And it's not as bad as it sounds. You know, a lot of people make a really big deal about it, but it's really not that terrible. I think the funniest part about considering carrying your own waste out is honestly that my brain immediately goes to like, man, that does mean that your pack doesn't get lighter as you eat all of your food. <laughs> uh, I mean, it gets a little lighter. You you you, <laughs> you use a lot of that as, as you're consuming it. I mean, I hope you're not excreting the exact same amount you're intaking. That would be a problem. <laughs> Digestion is important that you absorb part of it at least. Um, right. Okay, so what what does it mean to biodegrade? Like, what's the what's the argument of biodegradation, and and why why is this a problem? So one of the primary arguments I hear from a lot of people when you when you start talking about having to carry your own waste out of a specific area is, oh well, poo's biodegradable. It's biodegradable, right? And I, and I think a lot of people get confused. When we say something's biodegradable, that that's not a function of the thing. Like, that's a function of the environment that the thing is placed in. And there are certain factors that have to be present for that process to take place. When, when you say something's biodegradable, essentially what you're saying is it's consumable by microbiotic organisms in, in that environment. And... It, it's, should probably preface this by saying like, I'm not a biologist, I'm not a scientist, but this is 
something I know kind of a great deal about because I've spent enough time in the backcountry and and read all the articles and researched all the you know all the papers that have come out and it's it's important to me to respect the environment that I'm going into and if respecting that environment means carrying out a bag of my own shit then I'm going to do that without argument but I, I think a lot of people think things you know when you say something's biodegradable they think that's a function you know, of that orange peel or of that pile of poo or of that banana peel. And that's not the case. It's, it's something that happens to that orange peel. It's something that happens to that pile of poo. And, and there are certain environmental factors that have to exist for that process to take place. And what we're seeing now with this huge influx of, of new hikers and, and new outdoor enthusiasts is that a lot of these environments are just being completely overwhelmed and they're finding you know dangerous levels of of things like e coli and salmonella which are always naturally present in human beings and which are in our waste you know we always have this tiny amount of these bacteria in our bodies just because of our diets you know and the, the big argument you always hear oh well bears poop in the woods and deer poop in the woods but those, those animals eat from the environment that they're pooping in. We're right. bringing foreign material into this environment. And at this point, there's so many people going out there that we're bringing foreign material into this environment in much, much higher levels than the environment can possibly sustain. And this, this is going to negatively impact everybody who enjoys outdoor spaces because you're going to find contaminated water sources you're going to find fish that are sick so if you're a fisherman or or a hunter you know this directly impacts you and it's a thing you should care about so if you're going to a space that is asking you to carry out your own waste i urge you just just do it just don't complain about it don't be an entitled crybaby about it just shit in a bag carry it out and dispose of it properly. It's, it's not that big of a deal and not doing it will become a very big deal. You're, you're going to see a huge increase in contaminated waterways, which means you have contaminated animals who live in those waterways. So if you're a fisherman, you're catching and eating these, these contaminated fish. Now, if you're a hunter, you're, you're going out and hunting contaminated animals. If you're a hiker, you're sleeping on contaminated ground and trying to filter contaminated water. Like this impacts everybody. And this is the compromise. Like, like in order to allow the amount of people who want to enjoy the outdoor spaces to do so unhindered, this is the compromise. And the only other option that a lot of these national parks are going to have is to severely limit the number of people who are allowed in each space in a given time frame. So you can either poo in a bag or see hugely decreased, you know, permit lotteries and 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 just you're going to see huge increases to restrictions to these public areas and I mean given the given the choice, I would rather carry out my own waste than than not be able to go to the places I want to visit. Right. And I also think it's just a general consideration for the environment that you're around. But like, I want to circle back to contaminated waterways, contaminated dirt, like, 
we go into the mountains and we we often jump into into the water with our whole bodies. And uh, if you've ever done this and not gotten it in your eyes, mouth, nose, and everywhere else, um, good job. Wow, that's not my life. It just goes in all the places, and that's usually fine because it's beautiful, wonderful mountain water. So you should not swallow swallow it because giardia. Um, but like, just just think about that. Now the water is contaminated by other people's poop, and now it is in your eyes and your nose and your mouth and maybe your kids. And so, like, I think it's really important. And when I actually first heard this announced, I thought about it and I was like, I think in in all situations from now on, I I'm going to pull. I'm gonna I'm gonna take my own waste out, even when I'm not asked, because I just. I don't come from that environment. I live in an urban environment. I do eat processed food. I eat food that doesn't come from that environment. And what my body puts out isn't meant to be in that environment. And so like, I know that that's not something that everyone can do. And I know that I don't go on as long of trips as many other people or many people who listen and certainly you, but like that, that's just a commitment that I decided to make personally because I want to consider the natural spaces and humans are really, really impactful. Absolutely. And to, you touched on Giardia just for a second there. And this is a, a thing that's going to bum a lot of people out. But the reality of it is, most people do not get Giardia. Even when they think they have Giardia, most people do not get Giardia. They just got shit in their mouth, like literal human waste. And it, it can make you devastatingly ill. And a lot of people write, oh, I just, I didn't filter my water well enough, or I got, you know, it's Giardia, it's Giardia. No, you ate shit. Literally. <laughs> oh, man, that's gross. Okay. <laughs> so, w- one quick funny story that's tied to this, and, and hopefully this will help some of the people who are listening and, and disagreeing with us, as I'm sure there are many. I got in an argument online with a guy well, who was just like, oh. How Go can ahead. you disagree? Oh, go onto any hiking forum, onto Facebook or Reddit or anything else, and there are hundreds of usually dudes arguing. And, and it's always, it's the bear shit in the woods argument. It's the poops biodegradable argument. It's the whatever argument they have. And so I was in an argument with one of those kind of guys. And, and, you know, he's, he's throwing all the hits at me, you know, it's, oh, it's biodegradable. It's the, I've been burying my poo for this many years. I've been blah, 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 blah. And he kept coming back to the biodegradable, biodegradable, biodegradable. And he didn't want to understand that that's not a function of the poo, that that's something that the environment does to the poo. And so I challenged him to drop a deuce in the middle of his living room and set a timer and get back to me when it turned into dirt. <laughs> and how's that uh, science project going for him? Yeah, he blocked me immediately. Like, when I <laughs> didn't even respond, he was just like, block? Not talking to that guy anymore. <laughs> but it's true. Like, there are certain environments where human waste won't break down. And, right. and there are a lot of factors that play into that. Microbial life is the primary factor. But... An overabundance of human waste is is an almost equal factor because you have to have the numbers of microbes to break down the quantity of waste. 
And what's happening right now with all these extra people going out into the woods, which I highly encourage, like get out into the woods, do it. It's amazing out there. But the more of us that come out into the woods, the more microbial life is necessary. And right now, as it stands today, the environment cannot break down the amount of poop that's being buried. And if, if anyone's ever hiked along the PCT or any sections of the JMT, you, like me, have more than likely dug up somebody else's crap. And it's a Ooh, horrible girl. experience. It will ruin your day. And, and worse than that is the people who leave what hikers lovingly respond to as surface poo, which is where you don't even bother to take the time to dig the cat hole. And the argument in favor of that every single time, oh, it's biodegradable, it's biodegradable. The only part of it that's in contact with the creatures necessary for the process of biodegrading to happen are just right at the bottom. It, for it to really, really work, it needs to be surrounded completely by that microbial life. That microbial life lives in the dirt. If it's sitting on top of the dirt, only the part touching it is ever going to break down. It's going to take forever for that to break down. So, you know, it's not happening in every place yet. So check with the rules and regulations of the, of the spaces you're choosing to visit. Um, but if they're asking you to, to, to carry out your own waste, just do it. It's just like you would with your, with your pet's waste or anything else. You know, you don't want to just leave it out there. Just, just do the thing and, and don't be a baby about it is all I ask. <laughs> or we're going to challenge you to a science experiment. Right. Yeah. Or please prove me wrong. Shit in your living room floor and film it. And if it turns into dirt within, I'll give you a full year. <laughs> I will change my mind. And, and I, if you can present me with new facts, I'll change my mind on this. But as it stands right now, I'm going to listen to the biologists and I'm going to listen to the park rangers and I'm going to carry out my own waste. Yeah, as it turns out, uh, the people who are charged with taking care of environments very often know what's best for those environments better than the people who occasionally visit them in a recreational kind of way. Exactly. All right, enough poo talk. Let's get on to adventures. <laughs> I want to hear about uh, what you've been up to. Okay, so I've been... Uh, um, I think it's fun, the difference in the way that you and I adventure, like you go out and you stay out and you go on bigger epic, uh, not like, not more epic, but epic, long, significant stay in it. And I have like all these like little adventures that I like go on all the time, all the time, all the time. Um, and so it's fun because like, you're like, you, you, you have a trip summary and I have a trips summary. Um, and like, I know that a couple of episodes back, I talked about diving kelp, uh, forests and I just got back from Southern California where we had not, not a disappointing trip. Um, but like, I think it's important to talk about how every single time you go to do something and you have these expectations and you spend this time planning that it doesn't always turn out how you want. And that's 
often really cool and it turns into something else. And sometimes it's just disappointing and sometimes it's both. And in this case, it was both the swell and the wind and the weather and the sun were kind of all against us and we only had two days. So we went down there because I found out that the space on the southern southern part of California um, into Mexico, I think, um, has more dolphins than anywhere else actually in the world that live there. Um, and so I was like, I'm gonna go find myself some dolphins. Uh, so I packed my paddleboard, I packed my wetsuit, I head down to Southern California, and we actually ended up encountering three different species of dolphins that were all together, which is very rare and was really fun. Um, but we never ended up getting into the water because the visibility was quite, quite literally, I couldn't see my fingers uh, if I put my hand out in front of me. And oh, wow. diving the California coast involves quite a lot of um, dangerous situations that should be considered. Uh, and not being able to see around you is intensely stressful, if nothing else, uh, but actually really, really dangerous because you couldn't see something coming until it was actually touching you, um, which actually happened to me, but not in as scary of a way. So that was day one, no visibility whatsoever. We paddleboarded all day and then we went on some very disappointing uh, quote unquote hikes in the hills. Um, <laughs> and uh, and that, that's fine. Sunday, we ended up diving some absolutely incredible kelp fields and the sun came out and you were able to see, but it was still only about four or five feet. So I remember this one dive, I dove down and I looked to my right and there's a grouper that's probably two and a half, maybe three feet long maybe inches from my face. Like this grumpy dude's face was right in my face. And I was like, whoa, I did not know a fish that big could just be chilling next to your head. And <laughs> um, but I just, I just love diving kelp fields because it feels like the hiking that I've done my entire life, but in this really wild ethereal way where instead of and I, I've, I've talked about this a little bit, but like walking on the ground and looking up at the trees and seeing the birds flying through trees and seeing the creatures in, in, in the woods is, is really similar and totally different than swimming through the treetops of the canopy of a bunch of 50 foot like plants that are filled with all of these creatures and animals that are kind of flying through them and walking along the bottom and there's so many parallels and normally people f grow up in water environments. They stay in water environments. They're water people. And I'm this really strange version of both. And so I do really strange things like I'm diving through the kelp field uh, in the canopy about four feet below the surface, just kind of like navigating through. And I'm like, man, I wish I could do this in the woods. It would just be so fucking cool if you could be 40 feet up and just sort of like just navigating through the treetops, looking down at the, you know, granite and all the little creatures. I, anyways, so I did that this weekend. Um, and uh, and that that's the one that's the freshest on my mind. Uh, again, the visibility was total crap. The swells were very, very big. Uh, big enough that they make it so you can't see land, even when you're only like a couple hundred feet out into the surf. Um, and wow. I did get absolutely demolished by a wave, but I'm getting better. 
That's good. So I have a couple of questions. Okay. Um, when you take these kind of trips, is it like, are you, are you staying in motels and hotels and then, and then just going to certain locations? Or are you camping? Like what is, what does that part of it look like? Uh, so we always stay in hotels right now. Um, we currently have two almost seven month old puppies and dealing with them and everything else is a really big challenge, but mainly Laguna beach isn't a place that you can camp on the beach. Um, and, uh, and I guess this, maybe we should just call this the icky episode because I'm going to dive into a really icky thing really quick. And that is that, um, when you get seawater all over you and when you spend many hours in the water, you end up needing to uh, vacate liquid and wetsuits kind of keep things close to your body. And the ocean isn't as clean as you would like, especially on the coast of urban environments. Uh, and I spend sometimes up to 12 hours in the ocean when I can. And when I get out of the water, it is of paramount importance that there is antibacterial um, all over my skin, which I didn't do properly on one trip that we were kind of like spending more time in the water and then, you know, sometimes sleeping in the car, sometimes being wherever we could so that we could wake up really early. And uh, it turns out you can get full body yeast infections and they're not fun. Um, oh my God. So strong recommendation to shower really well when you're done diving. Um, and this is something that I'm actually trying to come with, come up with a solution for. Uh, because down the line, I would really like to do some of the really, really lots of islands places. Um, and I'd like to do them camping. The Bahamas is one of them. I'd like to paddleboard or kayak between the islands and camp the islands. Uh, but I haven't quite figured out exactly how I'm going to deal with the cleanliness issue. So they make, um, and I've seen a lot of like van lifers use these. It's like a solar shower. So it's like a big, like five gallon bag that you fill with fresh water. Um, and then the sun heats it up all day when you're out doing your thing. And then, and then you just shower with that. So I have one and it's never once occurred to me to bring that. And it feels so silly. <laughs> That's amazing. never once it is packed in my backpack which is the terrestrial zone of my apartment and i have never thought to overlap those so thank you for bridging that gap <laughs> that's amazing um there's a there's a van life couple that i follow on youtube and uh, they have their uh and, and, and i think this is a pretty common setup because i've seen a lot of other people who, who live in vans uh, or travel at least extensively in vans. And uh, the shower is actually on the, the outside of the van. And so there's always this constant battle of, of trying to find a, a place where you can A, park a van, uh, and B, that you can park a van and that is private enough that you can also shower. And it was kind of funny watching their evolution over the past year because they did this big trip where they drove all the way across the country you know, they left from somewhere in, in California and ended up on the East Coast. And it was just so funny to watch, like, the first, you know, five or six videos on their YouTube channel. It's like, oh, we're going to rig up, like, 
this series of blankets or we're going to rig up this series of like towels and create like a little private shower. And then by the end, like when they're at the end of their trip, they're just literally showering like on the side of the road with no fucks given. And it was so funny to just watch over time their, their need for privacy just sort of disintegrate because it's, it's something that happens with long distance (laughs) hikers. Like I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard the term hiker trash. Yes. Nine times out of 10, when somebody just starts long distance hiking, they're like, Oh, I got to find like the absolute perfect spot to go to the bathroom. or I got to find the absolute perfect spot to, to do whatever thing that I need privacy for. And then like a year or two into it, when you're on like your fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, hundred mile plus hike, you're just like, whatever, man, I don't even care anymore. <laughs> it's, like, it's fine. If people want to watch me do this, then that's on them. And it was super funny to watch these van lifers, like have sort of that same evolution, if you, if you will, of, of like really wanting to have this private shower to just like, I just, I just want to get clean and I don't care who sees me. Yeah, the the situation definitely relaxes the further and further you get away from like an urban uh, civilization. And it's actually one of my favorite things that humans do. Um, I don't know if I've talked about the fact that my parents built this very epic adventure van. Um, I know I told you about when they got, they disappeared for four or five days when they were on a trip to oh, Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah. And we almost had to send out helicopters, that whole situation. Um, but They actually installed one of those showers on the back of their van as well, but um, they put this like, like awning enclosure thing that pulls out and then drops down and it's like super duper neat and um, it attaches to a bigger living room area that attaches to like the back so that they can kind of have this wild little apartment. Um, So apparently you can also do that if if your need for privacy uh, persists. Right. But now... Uh, because you already have the solar shower, you can you can bring that with you next time, <laughs> and uh, expand expand your adventure palette a little bit beyond hotel rooms. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And like the benefit on my for me is that um, I already have a little plastic disc that I stand on to take all of my wet clothes off, and then you know, kind of bunch it up so it doesn't get everything wet. But under a wetsuit, you're I, I shouldn't project on other people. You can wear whatever you want. I am always wearing like a swimsuit or an undersuit. So I can just strip off in public and not, you know, kids around, whatever, and take a shower using like any, any given tree nearby. I just like feel so silly that I've never thought about that. I'm over here. Like I bought a pack of like the towelettes that you like wipe your skin down with. And like, so I'm like trying to like wipe my whole body with a towelette. Like, um, so, so yeah. Um, I've been on other adventures I'd love to talk about maybe later in this, but let's get to the main course. Let's talk about Lost Tra- uh, Lost Coast. Like, the Lost you can't, Coast Trail. Oh, you can't touch on was, everything, so give us some highlights. So this was an absolute bucket list hike for me. This was something... I, I have only been aware of the Lost Coast Trail for maybe three or four years um, some friends here locally went and did a section of it and, and took a bunch of pictures. And I was like, Oh my God, I got to go to this place. This is, this is a thing that needs to happen. And then, you know, other adventures come up and I went on these other hikes and the lost coast just never happened. And so I decided that 
uh, for my 50th birthday, I would, I was going to do the Lost Coast Trail. And some of the challenges involved in doing the Lost Coast Trail is they, they put the majority of the permits up October 1st for the entire year. And then you, you have to jump on to this website first thing in the morning on October 1st and like plug in your dates and just hope that, you know, cause they only release certain amounts of permits. And, uh, at, at some point, I think it's in late May or early June, that number increases, but my birthday was in late April. So we were shooting for this period of time where the smallest amount of permits are released and just hoping to get these dates and we got them, which was great. Then another big challenge is that where the Lost Coast Trail sits on the southern or on the California border, northern California border, not southern, northern, um, the trail itself is like 24, 26 miles, something like that. The drive between trailheads is like 50 miles. So right, because it goes up are, and over. Right, right. So your choices are you can bring two cars, drive all the way down to the end, you know, uh, so leave a car at one end, drive all the way down to the end, walk back to the first car, drive back to the second car, or you take these shuttles. And something we did not know until we got there was oh, that no. most people take the shuttle on the first day. So they'll drive their car to Black Sand, which is the end of the trail, and then shuttle back in the morning and start their hike or walk back to their car. We parked at the start. We parked at Matole and hiked down. And so we had to be at the, the place to get the, the shuttle at like 7 o'clock in the morning. Oh! Yeah, and it was so funny because like the, the shuttle guy was super cool, really nice person, uh, gave us a bunch of history and, and tips and tricks for the trail, which didn't do us a whole hell of a lot of good because we were already done. But we get in there and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to give you my spiel. And I'm like, yeah, man, we're, we're done. We're just going back to our car and going home. And he's like, oh. <laughs> he's like, literally no one does that. <laughs> like, and, and sure enough, the other group that was in the shuttle with us was like just fresh out of an Airbnb, clean, showered, and just like ready to get their hike started. And so we're like, we smell so bad at this. We were on the trail for like five days. And so we're just <laughs> sitting in this van with this other group of people who like, you know, the smell lovely because they'd showered that morning in their little Airbnb. And we were in the back of the van, just like filthy and smelly, and like my pants were torn, and like it was, it was, it was pretty funny. So, if you plan on doing the Lost Coast Trail, don't don't do what we did. Get a hotel or an Airbnb or something. Take the shuttle back to your car, and then start so that you're walking you're walking towards your car. You're not walking away from your car, essentially. But but you caught the shuttle, and everything worked out okay. Right? You didn't miss it or anything. I sit there for a day. No, we ended up... So, Friday night, we camped like a mile from the end of the trail. And then we got up at like 4 o'clock in the morning, which in and of itself was pretty amazing. We got to walk down the beach as the sun was rising. So, we're like hiking well, down the beach. Well, you know that's one of my favorite things in the whole freaking world. 
Oh, it was so cool. It was so cool. But it was it was kind of funny to hear the the shuttle driver be like, "Yeah, no one, no one does this. No one does. This. Just you. That you're the only one." It was really funny. But the the trail itself is pretty magnificent. It's um, completely different environment from what I'm used to hiking in. You know, I'm used to the Sierras and and specifically like the Eastern Sierras where it's just granite and you're up above the tree line and you're dealing with like huge elevation gains and losses all day long. And uh, this is relatively flat. You spend a significant portion of time hiking on the beach. You spend a little bit of time hiking on like this little uh, ridge up above the beach. But I, I think the the highest elevation we were at the entire trip was like 32 feet above sea level. <laughs> Amazing. Bad. Yeah. Um, but so the first day, right out of the gate, we get up, uh, start heading down the trail. And we're, you know, we're just so excited and, and just ready and raring to get this, this trip rolling. We're walking down and we're maybe like four miles in. And all of a sudden, there's just sea lions, like, everywhere. They're just laying out on the beach, laying out on the rocks. They're just all over the place. And we got so lost in just, like, taking pictures and, and shooting video of these sea lions that I almost stepped on one. Oh, my gosh. She was just laying in the middle of the trail, like, well away from the rest of, of the, the sea lions. She wasn't anywhere near the sand or the beach. Wait, 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 wait. Were they elephant seals or sea lions? Uh, there's both out there, and I don't know yeah. the difference well enough to be able to tell you which one was which. Okay, so sea lions... Can can I be a nerd really quick? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so sea lions... Uh, so it's... it. I think it was the beginning of molting season when you were there. So it would Definitely. have been littler guys with funny little faces, but sea lions have uh, articulating necks. So they have a longer neck that they can bring up and they have ears um, and they're really loud and kind of aggressive. And the size of elephant seals that probably was there when you were there probably wouldn't be very aggressive. They're kind of like, they, they look almost like little, I think the giant ones look like rolled up dirty carpet, but I kind of think that the little ones look like, <laughs> Not to just make this a fucking theme, but like look like little poops and they don't do much. <laughs> they just kind of like um, lay there and they look at you and they don't care if you're near them, but they do get giant when they're big. So the one I nearly stepped on was fairly small. Uh, I don't recall ears, but very big, like black eyes. Um, and she was very annoyed. Like she howled when I got too close and like, but still wouldn't move. Like there was right. nothing. She was she was not leaving her little sunny spot on the trail. We ended up having to go down onto the beach around and like circle back up to the actual like like uh, designated trail because it she wasn't moving. She was really pissed. Like she Amazing. screamed super loud. Um, it was pretty wild. It was super fun. Um, you know, and th th that whole area is, is, it's just so intense. Like, there's so many different environments. There's all these little canyons that come down off, and uh, that's where all the fresh water comes from. There's all these creeks that run straight down into the ocean. And in those canyons is typically where you're going to find the best camping. 
So, you, you know, you'll, you'll come up off the beach, up into these little canyons, and you'll find quite a few little established tent sites and stuff like that. And I always try to, I always try to stay on established sites. I don't like to make new tent sites if I can, if I can avoid it, you know, it's just so, so much less impactful on the environment that you're in. If you just camp in the same spot that other people have camped for years and years and years and years. Um, but those are all just like lush and green and almost like rainforesty. Um, at one of the campsites, there were just wild cucumbers just growing all over the place. Like it was, it was pretty amazing. Like I've, I have never been in an environment like that before, especially not backpacking for, for five days. You said that the trail was, uh, under 30, 30 miles long, but it took you guys five days. What happened in that time? How was the pacing? So walking in sand is a lot like walking in snow. And so, you know, my normal pace on like kind of a manicured, like on the PCT or, or the John Muir Trail or the Ruby Crest Trail that I did last year, uh, my normal pace is about two and a half miles per hour. We were getting one and a half to two miles per hour going through the sand. And um, the other thing is... You're right on the beach, so you're dealing with tides. Like, we had to carry a tide map with us, and we kind of had to time. Um, there's three areas along the trail that are called impassable zones, and you can't get through them at high tide. And even, like, like there was a couple spots we hit at, like, li- like literally low tide, and the waves were still, like, licking at our heels. Like, there's no way you could get through this at high tide. We There was one section... Um, I got I got really good video of this. I'm really happy. So if you end up on the YouTube channel watching the Lost Coast videos, look out for this. Um, there's a section where we're we were there within five or six minutes of actual like low tide, and the waves were coming right up and touching the cliff face that we had to walk past. So we had like had to time it in between waves. So if you're there at high tide. There's no possible way you're getting through there. Like we barely got through dry at low tide. As as someone who's done that a lot, I can definitely tell you that that is a that is a that is a focused and uh, I I don't want to say stressful because that imp- implies that it's like bad, um, but it it comes with a different type of focus than than walking on a regular on a regular trail. Right. So part of the reason it took us so long was. Um, well, A, that was when I could schedule the shuttle. So, like, we did, we had to be at the Black Sand Trailhead at 7 a.m. this on the Saturday. And so we sort of timed the hike out because, you know, we don't want to get – we didn't want to spend, like, a whole day just waiting at the trailhead or whatever. We want to enjoy the environment we're in as much as we can. So that was part of the consideration of why it took so long to do the hike. Um, but another another major part of it was, like – so the first tide zone is fairly short. It's like two miles, 2.3 miles or something like that. Um, so we got through that in one shot. The other two are four miles, give or take, each. Wait, I'm going to stop you. How big are the tides? Like if the tide comes up. So when we were there, we didn't have a tide higher than six feet. That was like the highest of the okay. high tides. The whole week we were there was six feet. But I mean, I'm six feet. 
So that presents some obvious challenges. <laughs> right. But it's fairly low for that particular area. Like right. we had we had really low tides for the Lost Coast Trail when we were there. Um but uh so anyway, the second one, the second tidal zone we got about halfway through before the tide started to come in. So it wasn't actually high tide yet, but it was it was coming in. We were like past the point of like the lowest tide and it was and it was coming back in. So we just camped there. But that was like four o'clock in the afternoon. And then low tide the next day was like at eleven thirty. So you can't leave until the tide is going out. You know, so you gotta kinda time it. You pick when okay, the the highest tide is just for I don't remember, I don't have my tide map in front of me, but let's just let's just say high tide was like seven seven o'clock in the morning. You can't leave at seven o'clock in the morning because that's when the tide is just starting to go out. You have to wait an hour or two or more to be safe. So there was a lot of time just hanging out at the campsites, which was cool because they were amazing campsites and there was a lot to explore and a lot to see. But there was a kind of a lot of, you know, I'm used to like on a PCT section hike or, or something of that nature, I'm up with the sun and I'm walking until the sun starts going down. You can't do that on a trail like this. You have to, you have, you're, you're at the mercy of the tide. So sometimes we'd be at camp at like two o'clock in the afternoon, setting up our tents, but we couldn't leave again until 11 o'clock the next morning. So you're eating up kind of a lot of time. And you've got slack tides in between, right? You have low tide and then you have the slack tide and then you have, you know, like there's, there's in between moments when the ocean isn't going in or out that you still have to wait it out. Right. Yeah. And we didn't really deal with much of that. I, we, we really picked like a prime time to be there. Like we had the lowest, some of the lowest tides you can have for that area just across the board. We had absolutely perfect weather. It rained for like 20 minutes one day. Amazing. Yeah. And like, and that was a thing that was kind of funny. Like we're watching all these weather reports because the week before we left, there was a big storm in Japan and that, you know, all of that moved slowly down towards the California coast. And so the week, the hikers who were there the week before us had just drizzly, like misty rain the entire week. They had some of the highest tides on record for the Lost Coast Trail. And then our week, crystal clear, sunny, super low tides, like super easy to maintain. It was it was pretty cool. Like we we definitely got lucky like that that the dice rolled in our favor. Yeah, and like you uh you have at least been posting more still photography than I've seen from you in the past and from what I can tell, it seems like the exploring the surrounding parts of your campsites was fucking gorgeous and amazing and gave you a chance to, like, kind of hang, which isn't your normal thing. Yeah, no, it was really cool. Like, there, in most of these little canyon areas, there's little side trips you can take. And there's a there's actually a Lost Coast website that you can find all of the different side trips. So, like, some of the places we camp, you'd see, like, obvious trail going up we didn't take a ton of them um the day of my actual birthday which was thursday we woke up and i think our low tide or no our high tide was eleven thirty six, 
So we couldn't even leave camp until afternoon once the tide started rolling out again. So I walked up a pretty significant chunk of this trail and it was, it was super steep, like, like ridiculously steep. And the whole trail out and back is eight miles and it goes up to this big summit. That's like 3,600 feet above sea level. So you're basically going from 32 to 3,600 in, in four miles, you know, one way. If, if that gives you any indication of how steep the trails are. Um, and there's one trail out there we read about that I guess is the steepest trail in Northern California. And it's Whoa. just one of these, yeah, it's just one of these ones that spiders off of the Lost Coast Trail. And uh, so I hiked up back in there and it was super cool. It was like the further up you went, the more quickly the environment changed. And so I went from basically coastal, almost kind of like rainforesty, you know, big, huge, giant leaves and, you know, poison oak literally everywhere to like ferns. And it was almost like being like hiking in Oregon, like, like Pacific Northwest up in the Cascades or something. It was really cool. Like the higher up I got, the more the environment changed. There was like pine trees and all this stuff that we hadn't seen on the whole trip. Uh, I saw two owls up there in the back of the, just the back of nowhere. It was really cool. The little side trip to take and it helped kill a lot of time because we had we had a long time at that campsite because of of when the high tide was and when it was like safe to move through that that impassable zone right right okay so in let's say four sentences or less per what were the five biggest highlights so number one i think would be just the, the very first day and probably even just the first half of the first day as just, just hiking along this gorgeous, like black Sandy beach for four or five miles. You have the ocean crashing to us on one side and like eagles and all this stuff flying on, on our left-hand side. So that I, it was just, it was so remarkable to, to be in that kind of environment because I'm so used to, granite and and pine trees and the occasional creek and maybe you'll see a deer or, or probably not um so just walking down and there's just like hundreds of sea lions and there's hawks everywhere you look so that was really cool the the second highlight i would say was probably the third night of camping we were up pretty high up in this canyon we had we nicknamed it the penthouse because um, we had to climb all the way up and we've, to find this flat spot. And where our tents were, we had just this perfect, unobstructed view of the sunset. Incredible. It was, it was amazing. Um, third, third highlight is kind of a scary one. We got to the end of this beach passage and we were going up onto like this grassy, meadowy area. And it's, it's like a four-mile stretch where you're hiking through this grass and it's like waist high grass and, and wildflowers just as far as you can see, but it was literally up to our waist. And within the first five minutes of being on this trail, we saw a, just this giant rattlesnake, it's huge. Maybe 10 minutes later, we saw another one. And maybe five minutes after that, we saw a third one. So we're like a quarter of a mile. Yeah, we're like a quarter of a mile into a four-mile section. And we've already seen like three danger noodles. 
Danger noodles. And, like, I remember thinking, like, and it was the weirdest, like, when we saw the first one, neither one of us really knew what to do. And it wasn't, it wasn't reactive, it wasn't coiled, it wasn't rattling, it was about 50 degrees. Like, the air temperature was about 50 degrees, so they were pretty lethargic. But both of us were just completely paralyzed. We're just like, what do we do? It's a snake. What do, I don't know what to do right now. What do we? And it's the weirdest thing because I have run into rattlesnakes in the backcountry. I have run into rattlesnakes in the Sierras. I saw the biggest rattlesnake I have ever seen out by the Sierra Buttes. And I've never had this like paralyzing fear before. But we walked up on the first one and I'm just like, I, I don't know what to do. And, and I think the difference is when you run into a snake like that in the Sierras, there's like a tiny little patch of vegetation. Right. And then the rest of it is just granite as far as you can see. So like the snake's going to dip into the vegetation and then you can see for like half a mile that there aren't any more snakes. Right. We're in waist high grass and waist high wildflowers. Like they could literally be anywhere at this point. So we saw the first one and we both just sort of stopped and we're just like staring at the snake and the snake's just staring at us and we're all just kind of going, I don't know what to fucking do right now. And then, you know, we get the, the, the second one. It was like another, you know, dead stop. And uh, by, the time we, by the time we saw the third one, we're just like, Jesus Christ, we have three more miles of this. How, like, are we going to see, like, 20 more snakes? Like, this is ridiculous. And then eventually you dip back down onto the beach and, and there's no more rattlesnakes. But that one, I'll never forget the first one we saw because Brian and I both reacted in the exact same wrong way. We just dead stopped and just stared at the thing. <laughs> okay, okay. So that was that was number three? No, that was yeah, four. Yeah, yeah. I think that three? was three. That yeah. was three. Okay, number four. Okay. So the fourth one is probably going to be the last night of camping. Uh, we were about a mile from the end of the trail. We found this gorgeous little perfectly flat bl- uh, like bluff that was as close to being on the beach as you could be without setting up your tent on the beach. Like we had a little patch of grass and some more solid dirt that our, our tent stakes could grab a hold of. But as soon as you stepped out of the tent, you were standing on the beach. And we sat there and we got there fairly early. I, I want to say it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, which, you know, we had to be up at four o'clock the next morning to, to make it to the shuttle. So we were, we were pretty ready to relax but I was just sitting there in my tent, just relaxing, and there's these wildflowers right outside the front door, like vestibule area of my tent, and they're just covered in monarch butterflies. So I sat there for just like an hour shooting like macro shots of butterflies, and it was amazing. Fucking incredible. Okay, this is a bonkers list, but number five. Number five, I thought we were only doing four. I got to come up with a fifth one. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, see, I would have saved the butterflies for last if I'd known we were doing five. Um, <laughs> another one, and this is this will be useful information for anyone who's going to hike the trail. There, there are multiple creek crossings as you're going down the beach. Some are easier than others. Some you can rock hop. Some there's logs. Um, Depending on the time of year you're there, all of them can be wildly dangerous. We were pretty lucky because we were there um, a couple of days after a big storm. So, like, we could see the debris and everything from where the creeks had been huge. But now they were just, like, normal, like, knee-high 
nothing creeks, you know, easy to cross. But um, there's a, there's quite a few of them. Like I think we did two just in the first day, and that's it, probably the most amount of creek crossings I've done on a single backpacking trip was was along the Lost Coast Trail. So if you're planning on going out there, um, water shoes are a really really smart thing to carry because a couple of the creeks like you just can't get across without getting your feet wet. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, uh, okay. So in, uh, in celebration of Epic Lost Coast Trail, I have a trail recommendation, which I don't normally do. Um, but I decided to throw one totally epic one down here because I figured we're going to talk about the Lost Coast Trail and at least people who have access to California, you're going to be like, Oh man, I want to do all this crazy, amazing stuff that you're talking about. But like, there's a limited amount of people who can take time to do that kind of a trip. And there's also a limited amount of uh, permits and um, it's a more challenging thing. So um, is, does that feel okay to, to launch off into that? Absolutely. Okay. So right now and hopefully continuing, but who knows with the weird weather patterns that this sort of climate changing climate situation that we have going on is going to do. But right now, uh, it is the end of May and Point Reyes, which is another really amazing coastal wilderness, although further up the coast north, uh, has this incredible phenomenon that I've never seen anywhere else. Although I do know lupin blooms are a magical thing in like Iceland and other places, um, but they're bright yellow and it happens simultaneously to the humpback whale migration, uh, Pat, the second one of the year uh past point reyes i believe they're all going north but don't quote me on that and so there's a trail that is uh my the the all trails is nine and every time i've done it my watch says 13 so somewhere in between nine and 13 miles uh long that goes from uh goes from a, a totally normal trailhead out to the point and it's point tamales point and this is i've watched i think i i think i mentioned this before i watched a, a pod of humpback whales and baby humpback whales playing in the kelp right off of this little point so you could sit on the cliffs and watch baby whales play in some kelp which was pretty magical um and you walk through this this explosion of lupins into this absolute explosion of mustard so if you are if you are jonesing for an ocean adjacent situation that is amazing and can be done in a day um the tamales point trail which is a very very popular trail is specifically at the end of may has features including but not limited to uh baby coyotes which we saw last time we were there baby elk because it's an elk preserve of the tool elk that only live in northern california um possibly humpback whales, although I'm not promising anything, wild animals are wild, uh, <laughs> explosions of lupins and mustard. And on either side of you on this hike is the ocean and the uh, bay. So you've got the bay on the inside and the ocean on the outside. And so you're listening to the waves crashing and you can look down these cliffs and often see elephant seals. Uh, we also saw otters um, at the end depending on where the tide is, if it's low tide, you can see starfishes and sometimes little little squids and little octopuses swimming around. 
um, and crustaceans. And if it's high tide, you can often see like bigger seabirds and bigger animals in the water there too. So really epic coastal hike, amazing at the end of May and beginning of June. If you have access to it and you're listening to this and you can go right now, go. Um, but <laughs> you're looking for an epic thing when you're listening to this and being like, I want to do an epic coastal hike. That's when you can do it a day. Now, is is there camping allowed out there or is it strictly just like a day hike situation? Ooh, that's a really good question. I actually don't know the answer to it, but I will figure it out and I'll put it in the notes when uh, cool. when this comes, by the time this comes out, I will have that information. But I've never really thought about it because I can drive there in 90 minutes um, from my house and I can do the hike in a couple of hours. So we did it last Wednesday and you can see those pictures on my Instagram if you see that stuff. Um, and I was home by 11.15. So I, I ask for purely selfish reasons because my uh, my Memorial Day hiking plans fell through. And so I am act actually actively looking for a replacement plan. Uh, I was supposed to be going up to Oregon and hiking with a good friend who lives up there. But they had uh, they had a situation come up with their with their job and and aren't able to do the hike anymore we were going to do the rogue river trail when i was pretty excited about but i don't want to go do it without my friend like cuz that was 90% of the trip was it was getting to hike with this person specifically so um i don't want to drive up there and, and do the hike without them so I'm looking for a replacement replacement hike for Memorial Day weekend, which is in like four days. Right, right, right. So check out Point Reyes. It's absolutely incredible. I know that there's uh, I know there's camping out there. I just don't know if there's camping on Tomales Point or in that area um, because it is an elk reserve. I'm kind of assuming it's not. Um, right. But like again, I don't know. I do have several friends who have done bike packing out there where they like will ride the roads to different spots and, and camp in between. So I know that there's camping out there. I've just never done it because it's so close to my house. And right. I'm not nearly as tough as you, and I will sleep in my bed and drink my Pete's coffee on my way home if I can. And if I can't, I'm happy in a tent. Fair um, enough. All right. So we didn't at all plan on doing our normal three-part thing but i think we've oh, talked right. a lot about the stuff that we have been doing so maybe we'll just leave off more stuff about us at the end for for next time um right, but right uh and kind of like close this uh close this up um but real quick can you plug where people can find out more stuff about leave no trace just to circle back to the beginning yeah uh so leave no trace just has its own website and we'll drop that in the show notes I think it's like leavenotrace.org or something to, of that. Very easy, yeah. Yeah, it's but it's it's super easy to find. Now, the information you're going to find on that website is very general, very broad, and it's really really important. And I just cannot emphasize this enough to look into the specifics of the areas you are visiting because every place has different rules and different regulations. Um, a really good example of that is is we'll we'll flash back to my trip to Utah. The first part of our first day, cat holes were acceptable. Once we crossed this specific border, the second part of that same 
24-hour period, that same hike, we would have to have used wag bags. And so it's really important to check, you know, the, the specifics to the area you're visiting. But the Leave No Trace website is a great resource for just sort of general, broad terms and, and, and best practices and things like that that apply to anywhere you're going to go. But certain areas you go might have stricter rules that should also be adhered to. Right. I think if you are somebody who wants to uh, venture out into nature, which I have to assume that you are if you're listening to this, but I guess you could just like us. Um, you should definitely be familiar with all of the Leave No Trace general rules. But, uh, you know, Jim makes a really, really important point in like in checking locally and you should probably do your research on all of the local things, right? Like if you're going to have tide issues, if you're going to have weather issues, like be aware of where you're going very specifically and plan according to that specific space. Yeah, absolutely. But, and especially if you're visiting really popular, you know, like national parks and, and things like that, you know, they're all going to have permit regulations. They're all going to have different camping you know some areas you can dispersed camp which means you can just camp anywhere along the trail some places you can't do that you have to camp in very specific designated locations and it's really important to know all those things before you get out there because a it's just respectful you you, you want to respect the environments that we're recreating in you don't want to go out there and, and trash the place up we want to preserve these these areas for future generations, you know, I mean, I, I don't have kids, but I want my friend's kids to be able to go visit the same places that I'm visiting. And they absolutely can be taken away from us if we destroy them. But beyond that, like, it, it just makes good sense to know, like you said, know what kind of animals are going to be present, you know, if you have a severe allergy to bees or or if you've had like a strong reaction to snake venom or something like that if you if you've had really strong reactions to poison oak or poison ivy you want to know are are those things in this environment that i'm going to go visit and Absolutely. so it's a really good idea Absolutely. And like a lot of times those sites, not to just harp on this too much to make the end kind of boring, but like uh, uh, those sites will very often have uh, updates on really important things, um, road closures, uh, plankton blooms, if that affects you, uh, environmental uh, things that are coming up, things in lakes, things in the air. Like, so the people just again, the people who steward these environments, they know what's going on in them. And it's important to kind of check in with the places that they put up information before you enter them. Absolutely. And uh, one quick story before we roll this out, and this is a perfect example of what not to do. When I was hiking the Ruby Crest Trail, uh, this most recent time, not the first time, I ran into this young kid who had been out on the trail and all over every resource you could find online about hiking the Ruby Crest Trail had mentioned that the road up to Lamoille Canyon was closed due to a mudslide. Like I saw that on sites, like I, I was looking for a shuttle to take me from one end of the trail to the other. And the first thing that popped up on the shuttles business page was, yo, this road is closed. 
Like they, they made no secret about it. They made sure everybody knew, except apparently this one kid. He did not know that the road was closed. And so oh, he ended up parking he ended up parking at the beginning of the road closure and adding an extra almost ten miles to his already forty mile hike because he just didn't log on to the internet and find out that that road was closed and that he had to go to this other road to get to the main trailhead. And so don't be that kid. Like, like if you're going to go visit a, a park, you're going to go visit an area, you're going to go hike on a specific trail, whether it's national park or, or BLM land or whatever it is, get the information you need to stay safe and to have a good time. Like if you get out there and you all of a sudden find you got to walk 10 extra miles, that's not fun. Like you're not having a good time at that point. You've just ruined your own trip by not taking the 10 minutes it would have taken to, to log on and go, Oh, what's going on at the Ruby crest trail this weekend. Uh, and two things. BLM is Bureau of land management in this particular context. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And also if you are that kid and you didn't check, be a badass and just walk the 10 miles. Like, what a boss. He's like, well, fuck it. It's 50 miles now. Let's go. (laughs) But he was unhappy about it. Like, I met him. (laughs) He really was. was. Like, like I met him along this section of trail. So, in the middle of the Ruby Crest Trail, there's this big, like, 13 to 15 mile section, depending on who you ask, where there's no water, there's no real camping i mean you could stay wherever you want but you're gonna have a miserable night in this one chunk okay and so adding that extra mileage put him in the middle of that section which put him walking even further like basically into the night to where he could find a place where there was fresh water and that's literally the first thing out of the, he didn't even say hello he just walked he's hey man where's water and i was just oh. like 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 eight miles that way <laughs> like, and he's like oh no I'm like well are you like are you like totally out he's like no i've got some but i don't have enough like i don't have enough to like set up camp you know and i'm like yeah man, you've got you've got like eight miles and then he told me the whole story about camping and your part where he parked and how adding all the extra miles and it wasn't even like nice miles like he had to road walk 10 miles right it wasn't even like on a trail, and and you had to road walk over a road that was closed because of a mudslide. Right. I mean, that happened to me in Lassen last year when we walked like fourteen, fifteen miles up the road in Lassen, which I'm glad I did now because that land, a lot of that land burned. But like, there was just a rock slide. However, this was a situation where it wasn't posted because it had just happened. It, when right, we got yeah. there as it was closing, and I was like, "Well, you can't, you can't plan everything." We saw some beautiful views. It was very snowy. Um, all right, we did it again. We did it again. Another episode in the can. All right, thank you all. And you can find where to uh, where to find us online and how to contact us and all that stuff and how to see all of the really gorgeous video that you shot on the Lost Coast Trail. Um, that'll all be linked in the show notes. And we always want to hear from you. So if you have a topic you want to hear about, if you have a question, if you just want to say hi, uh, hit us up. And also, we're going to link the Outside Magazine article about the upcoming changes to Leave No Trace. We're going to link the Leave No Trace website itself. And if you would like to be a guest on this show and you have a cool story about your time outside, it doesn't necessarily have to be a hiking story or a free diving story, just just 
something cool you did outside, hit us up, share a little bit of your story, and we would love to have more guests. Yeah, and like I would really like to have a, a stories from the our listeners mini kind of like mini-sodes in between our episodes at some point in the future. So if you're somebody who wants to kick us off with that, like send us your story. Also, I just want to hear your story. Seriously, I just think Absolutely. they're cool. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I will also link to um, that hike that I mentioned and uh, to some of the really beautiful um, Lupin stuff going on out there. All right. Fantastic. Thanks, y'all!